Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Let me tell you, for starters, that um, the topic for next week is a rather interesting one because we have a, a local uh, entrepreneur, Kelsey Prenovost, who has... Uh, done some interesting creative work around biofuels and uh, started a business and has, um, he spoke to the council roughly 10 years ago and is now back to give an update on uh, on uh, the whole business of biofuels and, uh, and that experience. So so we look forward to uh, encountering him as a now fairly successful businessman in the community. Um, so I invite you to go to the mic as the one already has. Uh, be brief. Uh, state your name, please, as you start. And um, and ask your question, and then please return to your seat so there's not a back and forth uh, with the speaker. Uh, so I'll ask uh, Bob to come forward, having had a good lunch and he's in a good mood, I think. And uh, I invite you to raise your question. And then he's right there. Already. Terry said next week. You're going to have yeah, an interesting person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got it wrapped around. Yeah. I guess I might just walk along. I probably should have paid for my lunch. <laughs> yeah, I noticed Terry's comment. I'm still going to ask you a question. My name is Henning Mundell. And, and uh, allow me two tiny preambles because related to your little CV that was sent out and to something you said. I've never heard of tiny preambles. The year was 1960, and I was uh, coming from uh, uh, UBC Aggie uh, buildings, uh, walking over towards Brock Hall, and always the UBC lawyers, law students in their blue blazers and jackets. That's the only way we saw them. You might have been one of them. I, I, and that time I would have been. There you go. <laughs> and the other one you mentioned about the friendly encounter with uh, Bill West. Well, for uh, I retired six years ago, but for the 15 years before that, his daughter Kathy was one of my technicians at the research station. Now to my question. Um, the Colonel Code does not say she. Okay, the question's going to be facetious, but I want a straight answer, please. So women can get away with murder? <laughs> Sometimes. My wife seems to from Judging from sitting with Mrs. Dillington, it's not like she does, too. But they are treated uh, mostly equally. I think that, I think there's a, a pullback uh, when women are charged. Uh, not so much anymore, but it used to be that way, uh, observable, uh, but not so much anymore. Uh, if you're in trouble, it doesn't matter what kind you are. My name is Ken Peterson. Thanks very much for coming out and speaking to us, Juan. Very, very valuable. And my question is related to independent oversight of when the police are law enforcement has seemed to have overstepped their bound. Are you satisfied that uh, the oversight bodies that are now in place is uh, really independent? Um, again, not having had much um, 
dealings with him. Uh, I, I had intended to talk about that during my speech. I didn't realize 30 minutes was as short as it was. Um, I should remember that I used to be a lawyer. Um, but we have uh, legislation in the province, our police act, but we have what's called the Alberta Serious Incident Response Team. And the throwaway that they send out starts simply by saying the, Al uh, the Alberta Serious Incident Response Team ensures excellence and independence in the investigation, uh, in the investigating matters by the Director of Law Enforcement. And then this sets up by the Civilian Assistant Director, uh, Administrative Assistants, civilian people, lawyers, uh, police officers. So there's a, a good mixed bag on this, this group. And I think that they do their best to be completely uh, independent. And no, no question, there has been some uh, serious um, punishment meted out by the, the observations of this group. But I'm sure a lot of people will say to themselves, how on earth could that activity by that police officer get by those guys? And sometimes it does, but uh, the best I can say is they, they, they're in place, they're supposed to be objective, uh, they have a, a very clear mandate, and it's followed. Uh, you often remember that uh, sometimes the problem is so difficult that they'll bring persons from outside the province to judge these things. And again, the idea is to, to maintain a degree of, of independence as, as much as you can. My turn. Uh, my name is Patrick Berthelot. Uh I appreciate the time to speak here, and I, I am one of the guys that ambushed you in the in the uh, foyer, uh, and I appreciate getting the chance to talk. <clears throat> I spoke out not long ago about an incident that happened in Lethbridge here, and it really irks me that we can gather here and speak about police brutality. We refer to a shooting in Toronto. You refer to a tasering in Vancouver, but here in, in this city of Lethbridge, we had two Lethbridge police officers gun down a young kid in his, in his living room, put seven rounds into him in front of his family. A cert investigated it and swept it under the rug, and nobody wants to speak about that. I think that that incident is far worse than what happened in Toronto and in Vancouver. Fact is, Toronto rallied and protested for weeks over that. Nothing happened here. My question is, why are we not talking about that? And why today in your in your speech have you not talked about this incident that happened in this city? Because it seems to me that people don't want to talk about that. And uh, I think we should be talking about that because that was a horrible thing. I might add that I put an article in the paper about that and what I thought a search decision was. And since then, I've been in front of police, I've been in front of judges, my family and my life's been held since my comments about what I felt would happen. So what are your opinions on people speaking out about things like that and then having the police bully them? Well, there's a million things you could talk about there, and I'm not sure I, I agree with any or all of what you said. People should be entitled to speak out, but you've got to know what the facts are. I can't speak about the problem that you pointed out to me because I'm not, I'm not conversant with it. And my whole, uh, the whole kind of work that I did uh, required that I see all of the facts before I pass judgment. And some of my friends might not say that, but when I'm talking about serious stuff like you brought up, I don't know what the facts are. If they are as you say, then something perhaps should have been done. 
But my experience is that there's always two sides to a page. And uh, the fact that this happened in Lethbridge is sad, but there must be some uh, significant uh, background that we don't know here. And I'm not prepared to comment on that without knowing what that is. Uh, if, if it's as you say, I have some great sympathy for you. But I also have uh, sometimes, uh, my view is a little jaundiced about people who get a little carried away about stuff. Uh, because sometimes it can affect you so much that you yourself, and I'm not suggesting this is the case with you, that you yourself uh, sort of don't uh, look at things objectively and, and uh, see things as they affect you without understanding that there's a broader aspect to this. And that's the best answer I can give you. I'm sure it's not a satisfactory one. Hi, how are you doing? My name is Dan Kortakowski. Thank you for coming out today. And uh, I just wanted to quickly mention that I took criminal justice. It was always my goal to become a police officer. I graduated many moons ago, as you could tell, 1997. And uh, I educate people because, to be honest with you, I suffer from a mental illness. So I go to police stations, uh, fire halls, paramedics, colleges, universities, high schools. And uh, as you mentioned before, that you know Sergeant George Carscadden, I know him very well. He's the one that's in charge of uh, arranging this. So we go out in the community and educate people about what you're facing with people with mental illnesses. So what I'm going to ask you is what measures could police use, mainly about education as a means to avoid future tragedies, as you talked about today? Well, I think they're trying to do that now. And again, as I was informed, the, the question of mental illness is, is canvassed among police trainees, and they uh, are at least assisted in trying to understand and recognize uh, mental illness when they see it in, in a situation that will require perhaps a different approach than some crook who's out firing guns around. And most things, in my observation, most crimes, uh, not the drug stuff, but a lot of stuff is, com is committed by people who have significant uh, mental problems. And again, I think uh, of that uh, terrible incident in the River Valley when the um, young uh, native lad killed his caregiver. Uh, and, you know, he, he, he was a uh, fetal alcohol syndrome problem. And so they're trained to recognize this sort of stuff. And the more training they get, the better it'll be. But there's always going to be incidents that just can't be explained or can't be resolved. Um, Austin Fennell here. Um, thanks very much for coming to speak to us. It's not very hard today um, in reading the newspaper to see that the judiciary from time to time is being tested in terms of its independence. And that it is not <clears throat> as easy as it might be for it to avoid interference. And I would like to have your comments on that. To what extent have you experienced, or would you want to comment now, on the extent to which the judiciary is, is pressured. Um, but you would have to name where those pressures are coming from, from somebody who is sat on the bench. You know, this you may find difficult to accept, but I have sat with as many as 80 colleagues in the Court of Queen's Bench in Alberta. 
we meet regularly, and in addition, you have coffee uh, at, at varying courthouses throughout the province and into the Northwest Territories. And I have run across some of the most hard-nosed conservatives, as an example, that I ever knew in private life, and some hard-nosed liberals, if they're whatever that is, in my private life. When they're when they take the rules, they forget that stuff. And they forget it not in terms of chatting in the back room, but they forget it on the bench. And I I would be hard pressed to find some clear examples of judgments made by people whose prejudice I know were affected by that prejudice. I would include myself in, in that group. It's just something you put away. But everybody has prejudices. Um, and we can't help that. We wouldn't be human if we didn't. Ron, uh, uh, I, I think the question was around pressures from outside, be, be it provincial governments or, 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 or community uh, mores or whatever. Well, again, you have to separate the courts. These, the, our uh, Court of Queen's Bench, which is the Superior Court, is the, is the proper designation of the Superior Court, uh, is governed by the, the, the uh, Judges Act of Canada. So the chance for me to be uh, put upon, if you will, by uh, others uh, is smaller because it's cross-country, and I, I pay no attention to this sort of thing. Sometimes the odd politician makes me mad, and if I ever had him in front of me, I'd fix him. But uh, <laughs> uh, other than that, uh, on the other hand, the provincial court, they may be subject to, because they're appointed and paid for, and their pay can be interfered with by the government as to what happened in the past. And there was a great human cry, and, and uh, uh, the government was cutting back. That went all through the courts and got sorted out. But my independence is guaranteed by the Act, and I can do and say whatever I want within reason uh, uh, and be safe. So I don't, I don't know anybody that was really concerned about being challenged by outsiders. Goodness knows, you go to a cocktail party, and you come to the Council on Public Affairs, somebody wants to press their view on you. I accept that, uh, but it doesn't affect me. I, I deal with what I have in front of me uh, and uh, sort it out from there uh, based on my own feelings and my own prejudices. I, I can't help that. I have some. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bev from the Stone. Thank you very much for your most interesting talk and very humorous. Yes. Very humorous as well. Okay, I have um, two things I want to point out about this chart and then a question. Okay, in the little chart that you handed out to us, yes. um, as a retired psychologist, I'd just like to query the circle that's called perception, because when we're in a situation that is fraught with stress, our perception changes, in particular when we're afraid. And we, and I think we can all agree that when, when, we, when the police go into a situation where, as, as the ones you've described, where there's domestic violence, or they think someone might have some kind of a weapon, they're afraid. And so perception has changed. So to go through this particular circle of increasing, um, increasing force could be altered by the policeman or woman's perception of the degree of, of harm or um, that they are under, in other words, that they might be harmed. So I would say, when we look at this, it looks great if we're just looking at it logically. But our perception is altered by fear, 
any emotion floods our brain and our perception is changed. Um, the, the other concern I have is with how police are trained. And I too have talked to George Prescott. And police are trained to kill. If they use the gun, they're trained to kill. And I've, I've had a great arguments with him about why not train police, police if they're going to use the gun to either shoot the weapon out of the other person's hand or shoot him in the leg or something else. Only Roy Rogers can do that. Sorry? Only Roy Rogers and Gene Autry can do that. No, no, no. No. <laughs> anyway, to her, to her. No, here's, here's my question, or here's part of the question. I have talked to police trainers, and they have told me that the reason police are shot, taught to shoot to kill is so that there is no one left. There's no one left to sue them. For shooting them. That's, a, that's really a, a very sort of cynical. Approach. It's very cynical. It's very cynical. And I, I don't accept that. Uh, ex again. Okay, let's hear the rest of the question, Beth. Yeah, let's have the question. My question is what do you feel as a judge, with all your years of training and your years on the bench, when the police are given the um, jurisdiction of being? the judge and jury and executioner. By the terms of the criminal code, you have exactly the same jurisdiction in the sense that you can do as the police do in preventing crime and uh, um, defending yourself or defending others. It, it, it's co-equal. Let me talk about the business of, of shoot to kill thing. And this really came out again in the, in the Pitcher Creek thing. The rule is, generally speaking, when the last thing they do, the last thing they want to do is take out their weapon. When they take it out, it's not to fire it, it's to be ready to fire it. And if they fire it, their objective is to stop the problem. Now I asked, I forget Sergeant whatever his name was from the RCMP when he said that on the stand, what do you mean by stop? He said, I mean kill. Make no bones about that. That's, that's what's what the objective is. There's no sense in leaving some guy wounded with a gun still able to shoot. Whether you agree with that or not, that's the process that they, that they go through. Now, I, I can't imagine that someone would sort of leave no evidence, but I, I can see a circumstance that that would happen. But as far as the perception is concerned, yeah, our perception changes in terms of our circumstances. These little circles may be nicely perceived and everything's calm and cool, but the training, as I understand, is to be prepared to deal with this changing perception, to deal with the situation as it appears in front of you, but to have this as a background in terms of uh, steps that you might try and take to avoid a, a dangerous or a fatal situation. But uh, your comments are, are appropriate, I suppose, but it's not. Not comments that I I have ever seen expressed in very many places. Perhaps this is one of the first times that I've heard it done so eloquently uh, and so forthrightly. We all have this thought in the back of our heads, I'm sure. Uh, my name is Frank Top, uh, Mr. Hembrough. May I call you Mr. You're not okay. Brock, right? Well, that's about the, the nicest thing anybody's called. <laughs> <laughs> right. My first name is Ron, and I prefer to be called that way. 
And I would just as an aside, I would say I, I enjoyed and respected the your lordship that I used to get, but I insisted that that was only used in the courthouse and in usual surroundings. The rest of the time, as well as the guys say, I put my pants on the same way as everybody else. <laughs> so this this big word of independence and democracy and fairness. I was brought up in a coal mining community, the same as Lethbridge, only they recognize the miner there. I was in the Air Force and a buddy of mine from Calgary asked me to go with him and meet his, his aunt, whose husband happened to be the chief of police of a, a big eastern city. We, we drove down about a hundred miles away and uh, went to the police station and uh, he said, sit, boys, I'll get to order a car for you and take you home. Let him take you home, I'll see you later. At any rate, we meet his aunt and he ushers us into the dining room where a pond, there's about the half the size of that podium you're talking to, on the, on the dining room table, huge, book like this. And naturally, old nosy, I start panning to it. And I ask the madam, uh, what kind of a house are you in? A residential house. <laughs> Frank, Frank, can you give me a mic? Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. Okay. Frank, Frank, can you get okay. to your question? That book had every individual in London, Ontario. The political affiliation, the religion, what have you. And what's your point? The point is, we're talking about independence as a judge, even, okay? So I witnessed the miners being beaten to hell and drum heller in the 30s by the same police, your son and my son. We're talking about independence and democracy. Different age. Absolutely. But Frank, uh, Frank, are you finished with your question? No, no, I'm not finished with well, my I, question. I'm asking you to. Uh, I'm, find I'm, it. Ju I'm just saying, I'm just saying, where are we today relative to this Bible, mafia book, that this chief of police had? A, uh, lot, a lot further ahead. I tell you, this particular Bible has in it as well uh, the Charter of Rights that we all live by that has made some significant difference. Some of you would say it was a pain where you sit, but uh, it made some very significant differences. But that's a topic for another day. Um, again, I, you can't compare the, the dirty 30s to 2014. It's a different age entirely. People think differently. Uh, you have all of the electronics uh, that disseminate information that's another problem. You get this stuff on, on uh, your iPod, and it's not, it hasn't been edited or anything like that. Goodness knows what comes on that. You, you can't rely on any of that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. My name is Henry Heinen. Yes. And I have two questions. One has to do with alternate justice, like the sentencing circles in terms of the Aboriginal Canadian. Maybe you can comment on that. And the second one has to do with Sharia law that one time was considered by the McGinty government in Ontario, I think. Could you comment on both of those different senses of justice? Well, again, that would bring into to some respect my own values and my own prejudices. I know what the law says. I know what the Charter of Rights says. 
and uh, as near as I can determine, uh, that equality is, is what it is, and it's, it's mandated by the code. Uh, I don't, uh, whether you believe it or not, I don't have any strong feelings either way in this regard. One that I do have quite strongly, and I had some difficulty with, and I faced myself, was the covering of a face in a courtroom. And the reason for that, to my way of thinking, and as a trained lawyer and a judge, it's very, very, very clear. When you're accused of doing something, particularly to that person or to that person's dis disinterest, you should be able to look that person right in the eye when he or she is giving evidence. And the judge should and the lawyer should. So that's one of the things that I find. It's got nothing to do with religious values, but rather it has to do with the values that I contain and maintain very strongly, the values of fairness before the courts. My name is Mary Shillington. Thanks, Vaughn, for your information and your sense of humor. I really appreciate that. Uh, I'm a retired clinical social worker and have worked with uh, lots of people who have uh, been abused, uh, family violence, and so on, but also with people new to the country who, um, who may have quite limited English capabilities. And so I'm wondering a couple of things, what kind of training uh, our police officers have around that. Uh, some of those people come from very abusive government, uh, countries with very abusive government and police forces, and, and are really petrified of police uh, and what they mean. And so all those things are important that, that uh, our police officers have so that their use of uh, force, or whatever you want to call it, is respectful of those kind of issues. Can you comment on that, please? Well, I guess the best is an example that we're sort of talking about was the thing in, in Vancouver at the airport. Here's a man that I, I think he was, uh, well, I forget what his, his nationality was, Polish, Polish. Polish yes. And uh, he, he couldn't make himself understood, and he had a mental problem, and the police acted in the most abominable way. And there, in keeping with my friend at the back, says they may have got away with one. Uh, but, again, I wasn't there, and I haven't seen all the facts. But I don't know how you can answer that, because we can't all speak Polish. My English isn't that good for crying out loud. And, and uh, so we can't, we can't all speak all these languages and understand all these different nationalities. Uh, I have some friends who have some funny nationalities, some of whom are here tonight, and I don't understand them. But uh, other than that, I, I don't know how to answer that question. It's just impossible. To, to be everything to everybody. But the best you can do is have, get as much information as you can and have support. Uh, every police uh, force in the Vancouver area should have people who speak fluent Chinese, who speak fluent Hindu, uh, because there are huge amounts of people there. Uh, here, where there should be people who speak uh, Blackfoot, uh, as well as the other uh, language that in this community, Dutch is a very strong uh, emphasis, although most uh, most of my Dutch friends speak yes, I speak very good English. So, but you can't be everything to everybody, and I think the police in general try and spread themselves as best way they can. Sometimes it doesn't work. Good afternoon. My name is Mike McDonald. Uh, thank you very much. Just kept the mic up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> thank you. My name is Mike McDonald. Thank you very much for attending, and uh, I appreciate uh, much more the openness of a retired judge than the current judge. Uh, well, Queen's Bench probably gives you more flexibility. Well, I think questions relate to reasonableness, uh, which you related to and which I think is a keystone of, of sort of most of the decisions. My question is whether or not 
there is any coloration in your interpretation, when you were on the bench, in your interpretation of reasonableness. And I'd say this in two terms. When you are using reasonable, it involves a police administration of force. Are you talking reasonableness from the place of a policeman or reasonableness from the place of a layperson? And, and, and is there any difference? And the second thing is that most police officers that I ever talk to in dealing with these issues will differentiate questions of domestic abuse because lots of times between cops and robbers, everybody understands the rules a little bit easier to deal with. Domestic situations, because of the intensity of the emotions, lots of times that, that rationale and that reasonable sort of goes out the window so that a guy will be holding a plastic mallet in his hand and go against police officers who have drawn weapons. So I'm wondering in your interpretation when you have to render decisions, whether the term reasonableness is colored by the situation. Well, you, you kind of answered it yourself in the sense that reasonable is such a, a, a general sort of a word. And it, you have to look at all of the circumstances in the, in the situation. What is reasonable here? Well, did the guy have a gun or did he have a napkin? Uh, was he strangling somebody or was he just standing quietly by? So you have to look at all of the, uh, the, the facts. And reasonableness is, again, measured sort of individually in each particular circumstance. But I would observe that what's reasonable to me and what's reasonable to you should be reasonable to a police officer as well. The difference is that he may have to take steps that you aren't able to take, and he really has to be certain that he's sort of on the right side. Uh, the biggest question you get, again, if you were to sit on a jury, the thing I tell you, that person must be found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, those are very common words, terribly misinterpreted, terribly hard to define, and jurors just can't get it through their heads, nor can I sometimes. If what's reasonable to me may not be reasonable to you. That's why we have 12, 12 people that try and work it out. But, but I would say that reasonableness has to be a sort of a universal thing in that circumstance. Now, again, I, I, I always remember, that I used the illustration before, uh, and I think it was um, um, the Scots actor who was 007. Um, Sean Connery. John Connery. And he was, he was in that show, The Untouchables, if any of you saw that. And I got the biggest kick, and I'm going to use a, a, a racial thing that I shouldn't, but it really was true, and I really got a kick out of it. And he said as he shot this guy that was coming at him, and he said, just like a walk to bring a knife to a gunfight. And, and that, you know, that's the circumstance. And, and I apologize to many Italian friends. But that's the truth. That, that, you know, that's sort of how it is, that, that every circumstance is different. In this community, uh, and I was brought up, everybody's the same. I was taught as a lawyer that everybody's the same. They have the same rights, the same obligations. And I found that, and I, I tried to promote that as a judge. Everybody's the same. And sometimes a name is hurtful. Sometimes we get too excited. You know, a name is a name. But it's the idea that counts. Are we done haranguing? Would you give a thank you to Paul Cabral?